Now we're going to the second false claim, which is going to begin the first condition of you must renounce sin. Now that it is established the foundation, we must all accept that God is light and then there is no darkness. And therefore, if you have darkness, you cannot walk with him and you have no fellowship with him. Now we get into the first condition and then we'll go into the next conditions. And they're all rooted in this. God is light and in him there is no darkness. Verse 8. So this false claim will be verse 8 and the counterclaim will be verse 9. Verse 8, if we say we do not bear the guilt of sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So the second false claim that is being made here by the false teachers is that they are not guilty of sin. The Greek phrase, say we do not have sin, is an expression limited to John's writings. This phrase, say we do not have sin, does not show up in any other writings except for John's. It is difficult to translate, though many English translations have something like, we have no sin, or we are without sin. This does not seem to be the idea here, since John will make this point in the following verse. So a lot of translations will say, we have no sin, or without sin. But then in the third claim statement, he'll say the exact same thing again. And you're like, okay, John, you just already showed that false claim and counteracted it. Why are you repeating again? Because in the Greek, probably the more of the idea here is that we don't have guilt of sin. They're not exactly saying that they don't sin, but they're saying that they don't have to feel guilty for what they do. And there is a difference between those two. One says they don't even sin at all. Or what I do, you can't even say that it's sin. But this one is saying, yes, there are things that are sinful maybe, but I don't have to feel guilty because thank God I'm saved. This is the idea kind of in the same ballpark as when Paul says, the more that sin abounds, the more that grace abounds. And should we just sin so that grace may abound all the more? And he's like, heck no. The idea here is to be without guilt. I don't have to feel guilty for what we do. And that is definitely the mantra of our culture. Oh, yeah, you say that drinking or smoking or sleeping around or, 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 or being a glutton or, or whatever, all these things, right? But I don't have to feel guilty for that. This only affects my life. This is my choice. We live in a free country. What's true for me is true for me. What's true for you is true for you. Don't you dare judge me. Or I'm just following my heart. That's what my heart wants. Love is love. And that's what I love. And John is saying no. No, 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 no. If you say that you don't have to feel guilty for what you're doing, you're deceiving yourself. You're absolutely deceiving yourself, and the truth is not in you. What's interesting is right now I'm fascinated by a series of YouTube videos that are coming out where people are basically coming to a point in their life of their marriage or pre-marriage or different things, and they're talking about how I'm a strong, independent woman. I'm a strong, independent man. I'm free to do whatever I want. I can live my life how I want. The culture has given me free sex 
and, and free choices and that kind of stuff. And I'm going to do that, right? We have proven that these archaic, outdated, dogmatic morality ideas of the Judeo-Christian 1950s culture is just outdated and dumb. And they're, they're celebrating. They're celebrating divorcing their, their husbands and they're walking away from their kids to pursue the free lifestyle because these shackled them down and kept them from doing that. And then they're celebrating. But what's also interesting is a few years later, they're making other videos and they're following up and they're talking about how miserable they are, how depressed they are, how they left a really good marriage for dumb reasons, how they're now... They're, they're, they, they, they've bought, and especially the young generations, bought into this, take control of your own body, and sex is yours. And the more you do, whatever you do with sex, that's how you gain freedom and liberation. And it's freeing. And now they're, they're talking about how lonely and miserable they are, how many issues that they're dealing with, all this kind of stuff. And in some ways, social media is just an absolute disease that is destroying our culture. But in another ways, God is ironically using social media to reveal the track record of that kind of a choice. That the very people who are following them by the thousands and celebrating them in the comment sections are now following them a couple years later and now seeing it, the results of it. And hopefully the younger the follower is, that seeing it might see the result of it before they decide to follow the same path. And the hope is the younger person is not even watching this at all. But if they're completely unguided and unregulated by their parents altogether, then hopefully they can see the final episodes of this series. And what's interesting is that a culture that is now literally thrown out morality and truth and absolute out the window for relativism... That morality is now a shackle that hinders you from being the all you can be. And that sexuality is freedom and all this kind of stuff is now living in it long enough. We've embraced that idea long enough that many, not all, but many are starting to now realize this is destroying me. And that's when he comes in and says, you're deceiving yourself. If you say that you can walk in the darkness and still be light and have a great life. And you don't have to feel guilty for anything that you're doing. You're deceiving yourself. Because you're going to reap a whole world of hurt. Because when the car manufacturer says, put oil here and gas here and nothing else, and change your brakes and all that kind of stuff, you're like, screw that. I'm free to do what I want with my car. I bought this car. And what happens to the car stays in the car. <laughs> and I'll do what I want. And I'll follow my heart. Right now, water is a lot cheaper than oil and gasoline. And welcome to a seized engine, right? Welcome to $35,000 down the drain really quickly. Welcome to losing your job now because you can't get there. Right? Eventually... And then only that, God forbid, then you lose control of your car and run to other people's cars. And then now what happens in the body didn't stay in the body. And that's what John is saying. Guilt is good. Guilt is godly. Now, wallowing in the guilt, stuck in the guilt, trapped in the shame, that's not healthy. That's not godly. 
But if you feel the guilt and it immediately drives you to the cross to repent and the blood of Jesus Christ atones for you and you're able to truly free that to him, then guilt is good and shame is good. But if you ignore the guilt and the shame and say, whatever, that's just social conditioning, a product of the culture, a, a, a thinking left over from a previous generation that is yet to die, then eventually it will build up and it will take you down and drown you. Or if you're a Christian who feels the guilt and the shame, and then you immediately go to the cross and you repent, but something about your personality or the way that you were brought up doesn't allow yourself to then move away from the guilt and the shame and step into the full light and the fellowship, and you're still somehow convinced that you're a horrible person even though you repented, you're still convinced that somehow you, you don't deserve his love or grace, then it will begin to eat you, and then eventually it will begin to rob you of the joy and the fellowship and the life. And what John is saying is either extreme is not good. Either extreme is not good. We must acknowledge that God is light and there is no darkness. Therefore, I must feel the guilt, embrace the guilt, and use the guilt the way that was designed by God. But then when I go to the cross, I must truly believe that he loves me so much that he truly cleansed me, and now I'm truly forgiven, and that this has no hold over me, and to step into the light and enjoy his fellowship fully, without feeling shame and staying there and wallowing. And either extreme is not healthy. And we all have done both or do both. Because we're sinners and it's hard. But the more you're in the word of God, the more you're bound by the truth that yes, this is important to walk in the light and confess my sins. And the more you're in the God, the more you realize, yes, Jesus really does love me so much that I don't want to be stuck in the guilt and the shame. And that only can come through a historical truth. That can only come from a historical truth. Because, right, how often have you just tried to change the way that you feel? And my favorite phrase for whether something is actually legit or not is, how's that been working out for you? That's the false claim. And you're a liar if you believe that. Or you're deceiving yourself. Verse 9, here's the counterclaim. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous, forgiving us of our sins and cleansing us from unrighteousness. You're like, yeah, but I do. I am guilty, right? I am guilty of this sin. I am committing it. I should feel this shame. And I know I'm going to do it again, right? I have a trouble with my anger and frustration. I, I haven't been able to overcome this addiction in five minutes. But if you confess your sins, he is faithful and righteous in forgiving you of your sins. So the wisdom literature is, you are guilty, period. But the blood of Christ takes care of that guilt, and it forgives you. You see what John's doing? He keeps going back to the wisdom literature. Don't be content with being in the darkness. But at the same time, don't be overly beaten down in this hopeless attempt for you to meet the bar because you can't do it. You're cleansed by the blood of Christ. Confess your sins. And what John is ultimately doing is he's rooting you in the truth and the reality of who God is and who you are. And then he keeps driving you to the cross. Driving you to the cross. 
That's what the First Testament does. The First Testament is revealing who God is and who you are. So you get lots of stories of you sinning as a human, you complaining against God, you trying to attack God, you accusing God of being a psychopath who only brought you out of the wilderness so he could kill you. You constantly doing this over and over again. You building a government called democracy and it fails you. You building a government called a dictatorship and it fails you. You building a government called communism and it fails you. You building an economy called capitalism and it fails you. You building an economy called free market and it fails you, right? And the Bible's full of stories over and over and over again. That's who you are in your sin nature. That's not who you were created to be in the image of God, but that's who you are in the sin nature. But then in the midst of that, he gives you story after story after story of how God came in and saved them. God came in and forgave them. God came in and provided for them. God came in and pursued them over and over again. That's what the First Testament is. Not one place in the New Testament does God ever really speak or reveal himself in actions except, well, except for when he spoke briefly to Jesus as baptism and briefly the cross. But other than that, you don't see God speak or act because he already did it in the First Testament. But now he speaks and acts through his son. And so if you want to know who you are, go to the First Testament. If you want to know who God is, go to the First Testament. And this is the whole point of chapters 1 through 3 of Deuteronomy, where Moses goes through their story, the Israelites, their story being redeemed, coming out of Egypt, going through the wilderness, 40 years. And basically, if you want to summarize it up into a couple of words, it's you suck, you suck, you suck, you suck, as it goes through. But at the same time, he keeps coming in and he says, and God came and saved you. God was faithful to you. God provided the water and God split the, provided the man and God provided God. God, God saved you and God forgave you and God atoned for you. (coughs) And that's the truth. And so this is what John is doing. John is rooting you back into that God is light and you are darkness. But, but now, now God, John has a new message. And the new message is the cross, the cross, the cross. And only in the cross can those two realities intersect and coexist. Only in those, the cross can those two realities be reconciled. And so that's what John is doing. God is light, but you're guilty of sin. But thank God we can confess our sins. God is light and you're darkness, but the blood of Jesus Christ Cleanse you of your sins. Only when you know who God is and who you are, then can you be driven to the cross. Because if you don't know who God is as light, then you won't go to him. And you won't want him. And if you don't know that you're a sinner, a Bible that doesn't convict, doesn't convert. That's what drives you to the cross. And that's what John keeps doing. This is God. This is who you are. But he loves you so much. The cross. The cross. Our goal is to not sin so that we might then walk in the light and maintain fellowship with Yahweh. That is the ultimate one day goal, but that won't happen until the second coming. However, it is impossible for us sinners to do this all the time. We have Jesus who has pled on our behalf. Oh, sorry, I skipped ahead. So now we come to the third claim. The third claim. The third claim, the count, the false claim is verse 10, and the counterclaim is verse 1 of the next chapter. Right? Because they never put chapters in the right places. 
Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So now we deal with some of the false teachers saying, I don't even sin. I don't even sin. Everything I do is gold. Now, there are some people who believe that, like, right? And they, they might even go to Jesus, Jesus' teachings. Yes, it's only through Jesus' teachings that I've been able to say that I have overcome sin and I don't sin anymore. But it's still you. And it's still not the message of the Bible. I think of Charles Spurgeon, my late and right. One day in the seminary that Charles Spurgeon taught at, there was... Um, a, pre- a, a visiting chapel speaker who came in. I forget this guy's name. And Charles Spurgeon, this, this speaker was talking, and this speaker actually got up and led this chapel at this seminary um, and basically preached that through Christ now you can literally be without sin and that he had overcome sin completely through Christ and that to be fully and truly in Christ is to be without sin, period, and that you can achieve it in this life. And that he had done it. And he gave all these biblical passages. Now Charles Spurgeon was known, known by his students and the whole seminary. For if a chapel speaker got up and spoke something that was not biblical or not right, he would stand up and call them out right in front of the entire seminary and debate them and refute them right then and there. He was so committed to truth that he was willing to call them out right then and there so that the people wouldn't walk away thinking some false thing. Now, how much was altruism and how much was a little arrogance? I don't know. We're all sinners, but, okay, that's the first place my mind goes. But, um, but he was known for that. Everybody knew. They had been in the seminary long enough to know this is not biblical. This is not theological. Maybe a few people were like, wow, this guy's really well-respected, and he was invited by the seminary to speak, So maybe, and he's giving proof text, so maybe, wow, Maybe there is something there. I don't know. But what was interesting is they kept looking back at Charles Spurgeon the other time, like, is he going to stand up? Is he going to stand up? Like, like well, this is more ridiculous than anything we heard. Surely he's going to stand up. And Charles Spurgeon did not stand up and not say one word. At the end of the message, that's usually when they would go off to lunch in the cafeteria. And they would sit down. And, and, and like the seminary I went to, the speaker would come and sit down with us, and we could Q&A them afterwards. And the, the students were like, what about this? And what about that? Did it right? And then Charles Spurgeon came in. Didn't look at the guy. Didn't go to the table. He just went over and he grabbed a large flask of milk. And he walked over to the guy while the guy was talking, debating. He poured the milk on the guy's head right there in front of everybody. And the guy stood up and started yelling and screaming at him, slandering him. And Charles Spurgeon said, I rest my case. And walked away. Because the guy had been known for his temper, and Spurgeon knew that. You see, if you ever, ever, ever meet somebody who claims to say they have not sinned, talk to their family, their spouse, and their kids. Right? Yet there are people who will say, no, it's not a sin, it's just I make mistakes. They don't even say, I don't have to feel guilty. They just straight up and say, I don't sin. Sin is an archaic Christian concept, right? 
I just make mistakes every once in a while. Everybody makes mistakes. They're just flaws. I don't have an addiction. I just overeat too much sometimes. I actually had somebody tell me that once. Okay? I don't have an addiction. I just drink too much. Now, we all have our problems, so I'm not picking on two particular things, but I've heard this. And what John is saying is this. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Why? Because we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If you say that you don't sin, then you, talk, you literally say that Jesus is a liar. Because Jesus says there's none that are righteous. No, not one. Now in verse 1, we come to the counterclaim, which begins with a parenthetical statement. This parenthetical statement begins with my little children and ends at the very end of sin. And so here's a parenthetical statement. My little children, I am writing these things to you so you may not sin. Now, this parenthetical statement doesn't immediately go into the counterclaim. But what it does is John now gets pastoral and fatherly here. Look, my children, my congregation, the people that I love, my sons and my daughters, I'm not writing to you to condemn you. I'm not writing to you to make you feel guilty. I'm not writing to you to make you feel hopeless. I'm not writing to somehow, I'm writing to you so that you won't sin. I'm writing because I want you to eventually not sin. I don't want you to buy in these false claims and then go into your sins and your addictions and, and label it, I don't sin, or I don't have to feel guilty, or I can code it. And then, then it begins to pile up and pile up. And then one day in the day of TikTok, you're making videos about how depressed you are because you said what you're doing is not a sin. You're just being free to yourself. You don't have to feel guilty because that's a social construct of the culture that you grew up in. And that you can do whatever you want and still be in the light. And now you're depressed and lonely and miserable with problems in your life and broken relationships. I'm writing to you so that won't be you one day. My dear children. So he starts with a pastoral, fatherly reminder of why he's doing this. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. But when you do sin, thank God we have an advocate who stands on our behalf and defends us. His defense is not, they're not guilty. His defense is, I have atoned for him. I have atoned for her. The ultimate goal is not just to eliminate sin. The ultimate goal is to have fellowship with God. If we get focused on just eliminating sin, then it becomes legalistic behaviorism. But if you focus on knowing God and pleasing Him, then it becomes a relationship where the Spirit indwells you and transforms you into conquering sin. Because if you get too bit up on, I'm going to stop sinning, I need to behave a certain way, I, then it just becomes you, you, you. I, I, I. And then you become a Pharisee that cannot see who Christ is in a relationship. 
So the goal is not to eliminate sin. Now, I'm not saying you never think about that. You never do anything like that. You, I'm just saying that should not be your foundational, primary, driven, ultimate focus. The ultimate focus is I want to know him. I want to experience him. And as you do that, you say, what does that mean? I can't get, I want more of the word of God. I want to pray. I want to hang out with people who do the same thing. I want to be a part of groups that challenge me, teach me more. And as that begins to happen, then your identity begins to change. The spirit becomes alive in you and things begin to transform. Then you add to that cognitive replacement therapy, emotional therapy, accountability groups, right? Those become the things that partner with and parallel with I want to know God. And that's so important. That's so important. And he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not only for our sins, but also the whole world. Now he goes back to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is for everybody. This is for everybody. The atoning sacrifice, there are multiple translations here. The NET and NIV has atoning sacrifice. NASB has propitiation. RSV has expiation. It's a difficult, even controversial word, and we don't know exactly what word should be used here. Now, some of you are like, what? And no problem. Because even with all my years of studying and learning these words, sometimes I'm even like, which one is propitiation, expiation again? Okay, so many people argue that propitiation is the right word. What is propitiation? It has the idea where you have to make yourself favorable to Yahweh. Okay, it's the idea that your sin is so horrible and so bad that you're out of favor with God. And that's biblical. And therefore, you have to become favorable to God. Okay? No sin. Atonement. That kind of stuff. And so propitiation is when you are made favorable before God to to, um, satisfy his wrath. His wrath is against you. His favor is against you because of your sin. And something is done to make you favorable towards him so that his wrath is not on you anymore. That's a very biblical concept that is seen throughout the Bible. However, some people said, no, 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 no. That just sounds like God is scary and angry. Well, he is scary and angry, especially if you're a sinner. But what they most specifically object to is that that sounds like the paganism. Where the paganism is you're just making sacrifices to try to make God happy, the gods happy. And you basically literally sacrifice to them to make them happy so they don't kill you because there is no relationship with the gods. They don't want to know you, and they're so jacked up and evil, you don't really probably want to be with them. But because they're in control of nature, and nature is what you need to survive or it can kill you, then you propitiate to them. You just do things to make them favorable towards you so they don't backhand you. And so they said, that just sounds too pagan, and Yahweh is not pagan. So some pointed to the word expiation. And this is which Yahweh conceals the debt, or sorry, cancels the debt of sin by paying for it for you. So the idea is that you owe God a debt, your life, 
your eternal life. But you can't pay it, so God pays it for you by sending his eternal son to die for you. And so your, your debt is expiated. It's taken care of. Probably what's here in mind is both of them. There's truth to both. And to counter this is, is that you are not doing what is necessary to make yourself favorable before God, but Christ is doing it. Christ is the one that says, God is the one that says, you owe me a debt. I cannot look on you and say, I am favorable towards you. You need to become favorable in order for us to have a relationship. You need to pay your debt in order for us to have a relationship. So I, through my son, I'm going to make you favorable. I, through my son, are going to pay your debt. And in this way, it's very biblical because you were not favorable. Paul makes it very clear that you were not right with God. You were not favorable before him. Makes it very clear that you have a debt to pay. But then it's not pagan because it's Christ. And that's the whole point. That's the only thing that's, it's not that everything that paganism believes and teaches is completely wrong. It's that the difference is that paganism doesn't have Christ. Christ is what changes everything. And I'm not saying everything in paganism is okay, except for they just need Christ. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying not everything is wrong about what they believe. The idea is that Christ changes everything. Christ changes everything. It is the key to making all this work. And so John is saying this, that he himself is the propitiation. He's the one that made you favorable before God. He himself is the expiation. He is the one that canceled your debt for you. He is the one who is the atoning sacrifice, the one that cleanses you of your blood, your sins. And not just for our sins as the believers, but for the entire world. Because unlike the false teachers, we're not saying only the worthy, only the ones who prove themselves. And unlike the world, we're not saying this is secret. Because what John's doing is coming right back to that first verse where he says, Christ revealed himself to us, and we have been given the commission to reveal him to you and all of you. And so he hasn't just atoned for our sins and revealing himself, but he's now commissioned us to reveal him to the whole world because all the world's sins have been atoned for. Because remember, nobody goes to hell for their own sins. They go to hell for rejecting Jesus Christ. Christ's death was so sufficient and efficient that it took care of everyone's sins that ever lived and ever will live, whether they accept him or not. The only unforgivable sin is the rejection of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit made possible through the atonement of Jesus Christ. No secret teaching, no skills, no works. Christ revealed himself to us, and he made our propitiation, he made our expiation, he atoned for us, and now we are going to go out and make him known to everybody else because all you have to do is know him and embrace him and come to the cross. And so this is what John is arguing. God is light, and in him there is no darkness. And if you say that you are walking in the light and having fellowship with God, you must eliminate darkness. And that is only made possible through the cross that atone for your sins. So you walk in the light, you obey, you pursue, and when you don't, you immediately go to the cross. 
This is who God is, light, and this is who you are, darkness. And going to the cross will make you light. And eventually you'll do that so many times that you will become light and heaven for all eternity. So don't buy into these false teachings that Jesus' death, no, you no longer have to feel guilty because he took care of everything. Because the guilt is what drives you to the cross. And if you say you're without guilt, then you will never be driven to the cross and you'll end up walking in darkness and you won't have fellowship and you won't have joy. And don't say that Jesus died and so now you can be without sin completely right now in this life through some kind of accountability group and that's it. Because if you say that, then you won't label what you're doing as sin and that won't drive you to the cross and then you'll have no fellowship with him and you won't have joy. And so this is who God is and this is who you are and the cross is what keeps driving you out of the darkness and to the cross and to, or out of the darkness and to the light. And any theological belief that the world or false religion or the false teachers has for you just keeps bypassing the cross. And then in the reality, one day you'll realize that you are in the darkness, you have a lot of guilt and shame, and you're trapped and you're stuck, and you have no joy in your life. The cross, the cross, the cross. And so here is the condition. You must renounce sin, or you will have no fellowship with God and no joy. But at the same time, the only way you can do that is through the cross. And so when you are tempted to think that I've arrived, the cross reminds you that you have it and that you need him. And when you're tempted to wallow in your guilt and your shame, as if you can't accomplish it and you're not really saved, the cross reminds you the fact that you desire that and you think that and you want it, you're saved. Does that make sense? This is the foundation of the gospel that he has brought. Any questions? Comments? Is this beneficial? Good.